afternoon I'm Al Cresta we're coming up of course on Palm Sunday and uh, I thought we should give some attention to the event which is associated with Palm Sunday and that is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem my guest father Thomas Winendy is a prolific writer his most recent work is Jesus becoming Jesus it's a theological interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels, and he has a marvelous section in it dealing with the triumphal entry, and I thought this would be good uh, for us to reflect upon uh, as we move towards Palm Sunday. Uh, Father, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, thank you for inviting me, Al. It was, it was an honor to be, be with you. Let me just uh, ask a few basic questions about the, the book itself. It's called Jesus Becoming Jesus, and so uh what are we to understand? Uh, I'm sure you don't mean that Jesus was unaware of his divine identity or unclear about his mission. So in what sense is Jesus becoming Jesus? Well, uh, the the point I'm trying to make and the point that, um, in a sense, the theme throughout the book is that uh, when Gabriel uh, appeared to Mary and uh, when the angel came to Joseph in the dream, he told both Mary and Joseph that they should name the child that would be conceived by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, Jesus. That was the name that that, uh, uh, that God had designated, the, the Father designated this child to be named, Jesus. And uh, as we know, the, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Mm-hmm. All right? Uh, now... When Jesus was named Jesus uh, at his conception, and then in the you know in the temple uh, uh, later on after he was born, while he was named Jesus, uh, he had to enact his name. He had to become Jesus. He yes. had to be truly uh, God who saves. Uh, when he was conceived in Mary's womb, he sort of was he was literally Jesus in embryo. Right. Uh, and uh, so he, uh, throughout his life, uh, in a sense, becomes more and more Jesus. And so, I mean, he knows who he is uh, as he grows as a child. As children come to their own identity when they're two or three, so Jesus would gradually come to know that he's truly the Son of God. And, of course, by the time he's 12... In the temple, he's very much aware of who he is, that he, that he is the Son of God, and he must be about uh, his father's work, his father's business. But throughout his ministry, uh, Jesus, in a sense, more and more becomes who he is. Uh, we see this in the miracles. The miracles are signs of Jesus becoming Jesus, that, you mm-hmm. know, he, he's going to heal us of sickness. He's going he's to of all kinds of uh, physical ailments. He, he's Jesus by forgiving our sins. Uh, uh, and so uh, ultimately, uh, you know, he will become Jesus through his passion, death, and resurrection because right. these are the definitive uh, 
saving uh, actions that he performs. Um, and so it's, it's by performing these salvific acts that Jesus truly becomes who he is as Jesus, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh saves. Yes. Uh, and ultimately, you know, Jesus doesn't fully become Jesus until he comes again at the end of time when uh, we, when he raises us from the dead and uh, allows us to share fully in his resurrection. When we become fully saved at the end of time, Jesus will become fully Jesus. And so, in a sense, even though Jesus himself is risen, the head of the body is risen, and so the head, uh, you know, is is fully alive. Uh, Jesus, in a sense, is anxiously awaiting to come again so that uh, we can be fully saved in him, fully risen from the dead, and then he will be uh, be fully fully Jesus. Sure, so sure. That, that's why um, uh, the meaning of uh, the title, Jesus Becoming Jesus, and um, and that's why the book focuses on the actions of Jesus. Right. Uh, the act of the incarnation, the, the acts of the miracles, the act of transfiguration, you know, the act of, you know, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the, his actions at the Last Supper of giving the Eucharist, and while in the whole Passion narrative where he, he you know, definitively enacts the saving events through his passion, death, and resurrection, and sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, they're all, they're all saving actions. They're all Jesus becoming and, and acting as Jesus the yes. Savior. Yes, yes. Uh, let's, uh, you write that the triumphal entry that we commemorate on Palm Sunday is a, a, a multifaceted, enacted prophecy. So the, we have this procession into Jerusalem. This is filled with significance. It's not just a matter of transporting Jesus from one place to another, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a prophetic right. event that actually points towards uh, his death and resurrection. Um, give us just a, a quick taste of how the triumphal entry anticipates the coming of God's kingdom, or, or how the triumphal entry into the earthly Jerusalem in some way parallels his triumphal entry into the heavenly Jerusalem, and then we'll get mm-hmm. on to some of the details of the story. Okay. Well, I think in one sense, uh, before we kind of look at the event of itself and going forward, we have to sort of look back again. Okay. Uh, again, when uh, angel Gabriel uh, appeared to Mary at the Annunciation, uh, you know, she said, he said to her, you know, the child to be born to you will uh, fulfill the God's promise for a divinic king. And as the fulfillment of this prophecy that David's kingdom would last forever. Uh, so it looks back to that, um, uh, to the prophecy that, that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh and so it also looks back to John's baptism of, of Jesus. Uh, there, Jesus came forward to be baptized by John. And it's at that event that, that the Father commissioned him in the Holy Spirit to be the suffering servant son, the, the, his son in whom he is well pleased, 
And he's well pleased because Jesus will be the suffering servant, the spirit-filled suffering servant who will bring our salvation. Uh, and equally then, uh, we look forward, we're looking back to the fact that, that Jesus is going to be the new Passover, that he's going to pass from death to life, hmm. and that he's going to be the, you know, the new temple in which we're going to have access to the Father. And so when Jesus then enters into Jerusalem, you know, he's entering into Jerusalem as the, the fulfillment of God's promise to, to David that he will have a, a, a son whose kingdom will last forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he, you know, he enters on the donkey, uh, and that, you know, fulfills the prophecy that, you know, the king is coming humble and mounted on an ass, the colt of a, a donkey. And, and, and so he, he enters as the new, the new priest entering as the, the prophetic expression of the, the king, the fulfillment of God's promise to, uh, to David about being the, the new king. And he's entering into Jerusalem as, as the as the new king and and so you know and he's 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 going uh his donkey stops at the temple uh you know that's the end of, that's the terminus of the ride uh but it's the terminus of the ride because uh Jesus is going to be the new passover lamb uh that's going to uh, cleanse the, the temple, the people of all evil, and and he it's through this his offering he's going to be the new priest, uh, the all, the most holy high priest, offering the most holy sacrifice, which is himself, and in doing that, uh, he's symbolizing that he's through his passion, death, and resurrection, he's going to be the new living temple in which the perfect sacrifice is offered by the perfect priest so that we can have entrance into the to the heavenly temple and so by Jesus being the living temple uh we now in Jesus abiding in Jesus the high priest with the perfect sacrifice we have entrance into the living temple and so access to the father where it, with Jesus we can give him uh perfect uh, worship and as St. John says, in spirit and in truth. Yes. One of the things about this story of the triumphal entry is the attention the gospel writers pay to details here. So what's the significance of the crowds placing their garments or leafy branches upon the road before him? Uh, is that is that a common practice? Uh, well, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, when they rededicated the temple at the time of the Maccabees brothers, uh, they did it by not only offering sacrifice, but by through their palm branches. It was a sign of, of once more giving praise to, to God uh, and, and making holy the, the temple. And it also has to do with the people crying Hosanna to the highest, mm-hmm. Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, the term Hosanna means, O oh, Lord, grant salvation. And and so we have here again this, this the, the depiction of 
of Jesus not only cleansing the temple by uh, casting out all the money changers and the selling and everything, but that, that Jesus is going to be the one who is going to, again, uh, establish the new living temple, yeah. and the people are to laying their garments b- before him in honor of him and, and waving the bri- palm branches and, and crying Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're crying out uh, that God would grant them salvation. So it's a, they're, they're crying out both a petition that God would grant them salvation, but it's also a proclamation that they believe that Jesus, this man who's riding in on the donkey uh, as the king of David, is the one who's going to bring them salvation. And so it's like a liturgical entrance hymn. You know, in fact, fa- Father, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break and pick up this liturgical procession. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Thomas Winandy, author of Jesus Becoming Jesus, his most recent work. He's a very prolific writer. It's a theological interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels. We're focusing in on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the uh, the event which we commemorate with Palm Sunday uh, in the liturgical calendar. We uh, are seeing uh, Jesus riding in uh, to Jerusalem. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna. Uh, in the highest, uh, they are uh, laying garments and, and leafy branches before him. And is this actually, uh, can this triumphal entry into Jerusalem actually be considered a liturgical procession? Well, I, I think it is. A, it's in a sense it's a prophetic liturgical yeah, yeah. procession, because they're, they're, the whole procession is leading up to the temple. Right. And, 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 and so we have this liturgical procession leading up into the temple where they're proclaiming him, uh, you know, to be the, the, the Jesus coming in the name of the Lord, his being the, the new king, uh, David. And, and so the whole thing is, is coming to the temple where sacrifices were made in the past, but now Jesus is entering in, into the temple, into the temple area because he's going to perform the new liturgy. Mm. Uh, and the new liturgy that Jesus is going to perform is, again, his passion, death, and resurrection. In that liturgy of his passion and death and resurrection, he's going to, again, offer the perfect sacrifice as the perfect priest, and therefore he is enacting the perfect liturgy by which the people of God now can enter, process into uh, the presence of, uh, of the Father. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a prophetic act of what's going to take place during the what we call now Holy Week, of Jesus' uh, death, resur- death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, he, he processes, there's this liturgical procession to the temple, and then there's the cleansing of the temple. What was the problem That's, to which the cleansing of the temple was the solution? Well, the pr- problem was, you know, as he saw it, as he says, you know, uh, this is my father's house, but you have made it a den of thieves. Uh, you know, the while the liturgical sacrifices were being offered, it was also becoming a, a commercial enterprise, and 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 Jesus saw that 
you know, what what needed to happen was that uh, we needed a, a, a sacrifice, an offering that would truly cleanse us of the sins that we've committed so that we could become truly holy, so that we could truly enter into the to the again the heavenly temple into the presence of the Father, and the, so the symbolic uh, uh, the the cleansing of the temple becomes a symbolic enactment of what's actually going to again happen in, in the on the cross and resurrection that that and his becoming the new temple because uh, or through his death and resurrection we become God's holy people. The temple truly becomes a holy temple because Jesus is in the t- temple, mm-hmm. and so we have the perfect sacrifice again by which we c- are are permitted to, as whole God, holy people in Jesus, enter into God's presence because we're reborn in the Holy Spirit. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, uh, uh, the Pharisees seem scandalized by uh, this behavior of Jesus the cleansing of the temple, and also they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Um, Mm -hmm. What should we conclude about the authority of Jesus from this incident? I mean, he's acting as custodian of the temple, the Lord of the temple. Uh, Is this a a statement of his divinity? Well, yes. I mean, they obviously feel that what the people are doing— uh, is inappropriate because they consider she, Jesus merely a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't consider him the, the anointed Christ, nor do they consider him uh, the Father's Son. And so as the Father's Son, uh, you know, he would have, in a sense, authority over his Father's temple. But uh, in his response to this rejection of the, the Jewish authorities to what the the accolades and the praise and the honor that the that the people are giving to him as he processes to the temple. When he gets there, you know, he asks, you know, whether John's baptism is of men or of God. Right. And right. that le- that that leaves them stumped because they don't want to say it's of men because the people know or believe that John was a prophet and that his baptism was was of divine origin mm-hmm. but but then they don't want to say it's from heaven because if they say it's from heaven then they authenticate John's baptism of Jesus <laughs> uh, right yeah because John John baptized Jesus yeah. and in the course of that baptism God the Father declared that he was his beloved son, and he was the, he anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And so if they say it's from heaven, well, then they've authenticated why he has the authority to cleanse the temple in the first place. (laughs) That's right. That's great. (laughs) So, uh, uh, you know, but in the end, you know, it's obvious that Jesus, because he is the Son of God and the the, the anointed Christ by John's baptism, that he has the authority to cleanse the temple. But moreover, uh, again, that's, you know, a prophetic anticipation of, of wanting to cleanse the people to establish, you know, the new covenant, right. the new Passover, in which, you know, all can truly be made holy. Matthew uh, includes this detail that the blind and the lame 
during the cleansing of the temple, the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple, and he heals them. Why is mm-hmm. the location of their healing significant? Why does he make? Why is that significant for Matthew? Well, I think it's significant because you know the blind and the lame, as you know, the miracles uh, throughout the gospel are again prophetic acts. Uh, you, you know, Jesus has come to heal us of sickness and death, and so the blind, the the, the lame man, or the you know the sick. Uh, are symbolic of Jesus recreating us, making us new. And the fact that, you know, the blind man was healed is, again, a prophetic act that that Jesus has come to heal the blindness due to our sin from seeing God, and that, you know, the blind man sees now at the, at the temple so that he can truly see who Jesus is as the Son of God. And, and, and of course, this all gets, again pointing to his, his, his death and resurrection in which we are are recreated and made new, and, and we do have eyes that can now uh, behold God in te- the presence of God in the temple in the person of, of Jesus. Um, all three Synoptic Gospels have Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, and you mentioned that this is theologically significant because this prediction is sandwiched in between his denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees' rejection of him, and then his foretelling the coming uh, end of the age. What's the relationship between the coming kingdom and what Jesus is then accomplishing on the earth as he enters Jerusalem in triumphal fashion? Well, I think, you know, he's, he's entering into Jerusalem to to show that what everything that's symbolized in Jerusalem, what's symbolized in in the temple, that this is you know God's holy city, uh, this is God's temple, uh, and and what what he wants to show is is that uh, he wants this all to be fulfilled, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know the. the the Jewish authorities reject that fulfillment. Uh, but then, you know, he predicts after the, the Jewish rejection, the Jewish leader's pre- rejection of all that, uh, what he's enacting is prophetic. He, he goes on to talk about, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, the destruction of, of the temple, in a sense, again, is a symbolic act, because after Jesus dies and rises from the Ted and becomes the new temple, the new way we can enter into God's presence, the stone temple, uh, in a sense, becomes redundant, yeah. because hmm. after Jesus, you know, we don't need any more sacrifices. He is the one sacrifice. Right. Uh, we don't need uh, a stone temple now because we, we can actually enter into the heavenly temple through Jesus Christ. And, and, and the destruction of Jerusalem, while it will be built up again in a sense, uh, it, it becomes, again, symbolic of the, the heavenly, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and come to earth. Uh, and so now what we're expecting is is not 
in a sense, a building up of a uh, of a temple here on earth from ground up, but rather a temple that comes down from heaven right. uh, upon the earth. And so, in one sense, Jerusalem does not lose its significance, but its significance is enhanced because the Jerusalem that will now come down the earth is the heavenly Jerusalem in which God the Father and the Lamb who was slain uh, will be made present. Uh, and so, uh, the, you know, it's, 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 we're looking forward to the eschatological event mm-hmm. of, of, of Jesus coming again and being the, the new living temple coming down out of heaven within the new Jerusalem. Uh, he has this confrontation uh, that he has with the Pharisees. I, immediately after that, Luke shows him weeping over Jerusalem. And mm-hmm. what was hidden from the eyes of the Pharisees? Uh, what When he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets, stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not? Um, Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. This sounds as though their rejection of him is directly tied to uh, the destruction which is coming upon the temple. Uh, I'll tell you what, the mu- music just came up. We'll come back on the other side of the break, and uh, we'll talk about, again, the destruction of the temple. And when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? I thought he had only been in Jerusalem once, and this seems to imply multiple times. I'd like you to talk about that as well. I'm Al Cresswell with Father Thomas Wine and D. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Thomas Wine and D. He is the author, most recently, of Jesus Becoming Jesus, a theological interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels. We're looking at the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and all that is involved there. Uh, Again, Jesus coming to the temple in liturgical procession, the people proclaiming him. Uh, It appears that the king has arrived. Um, There's the cleansing of the temple, and there uh, the... uh, Scribes, the Pharisees, the elders are concerned because Jesus seems to be making assertions which uh, force a recognition, uh, would appear to require a recognition of his divinity. But when when he laments and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? It sounds like he's referring to multiple times here, and yet, as far as we know, this was his, at least in the Synoptics, this is his only time in Jerusalem. Right. Yes, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's only one entrance into Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole narrative within the Synoptic uh, tradition is, you know, leading to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Luke emphasizes, you know, uh, after the profession of faith of Peter, you know, he set his face to Jerusalem. And, right. And you have the three predictions of his passion, death, and resurrection, all in that interim as he goes goes to Jerusalem. John speaks of, of 
three entrances in uh, three times that he's in Jerusalem. So uh, it could be, you know, more than likely John is more historically correct here, but for theological reasons, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, want to focus on the, you know, that we're, Mm-hmm. The whole narrative is leading up to the climax, right, both right. the triumphal one triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which uh, prophetically enacts the uh, the whole triumphal entry in, in, through his passion, death, and resurrection. Um, so, more than likely, I think you know John would be historically historically mm-hmm. correct. The point is that he's weeping over Jerusalem because the the entire history of the Old Testament is a preparing for this. And from reading the Old Testament, while there are renewals within Judaism, and uh, there is also this constant, uh, especially within the prophetic tradition, of, of the people not listening to God's word, that, that, you know, God sends them prophets and 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 does all sorts of things and makes a covenant and make you know, uh, and yet uh, there's a constant betrayal of of that uh, uh, not listening to the prophets of, and be, repenting of sin and and coming back and and so Jesus is the culmination of that tradition in which now you know the Father has sent His Son and yet the Jewish authorities are rejecting him. Not the whole of Judaism is rejecting him, but right. again, the Jewish authorities are are rejecting him, and even though God, as a hen, keeps wanting to gather the chicks together, uh, yet uh, in his love and compassion and mercy, and yet now this this sort of history uh, finds its culmination in, in the in uh, the Jewish elders and leaders rejecting Jesus. So it's, it's a cry of compassion. But at the end of time, at the end of time, uh, if not before, uh, they will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of They will echo the people who have been crying it out on that day. Yes. Uh, <laughs> at the end of Jerusalem. So, so they will join with their Jewish people, the others, in uh, recognizing that, you know, Jesus is the Davidic king, that he is the spirit-filled Christ, that he is the Son of God, the very things that they're rejecting, rejecting now. Um, Jesus in, is inaugurating his kingdom uh, during this time of ministry on the earth, and what is the nature of that kingdom today? In other words, it isn't as though he came and he's coming back to uh, establish his kingdom. He's already inaugurated it, and it's active mm-hmm. and alive for us today. How is that mm-hmm. experienced by the uh, Christian? Well, yes, uh, good question. I mean, uh, I think... You know, Christians uh, experience this, first of all, through the act of faith. You know, we have to be like the people or the centurion standing before the cross saying, you know, truly this, you are the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And it's our act of faith that unites us to Jesus. 
and, and we be, come to abide in him, of course, that is immediately followed upon uh, the sacrament of baptism. It's, it's through uh, our participation in the sense in Jesus' death and resurrection, as Paul says, you know, we are been, you know, died with Christ, we've been buried with him, and we rise. So the, the transformation that takes place uh, with Jesus, I mean, he, he literally uh, dies, dies on the cross in the sense the old Adam nature that he inherited, the one like ours, was put to death, and then he's buried in the tomb, but then he comes... He's, the Father raises him from the dead to be the new risen Jesus, uh, the new Adam, and through faith and baptism, we are then taken into that saving action. We die with Christ, and we rise to him so as to become members of his body. We share now in the new risen humanity of Jesus, uh, we, we, as we participated in the old sinful Adam, now we come to participate in the new Adam, that is the risen Lord Jesus, as members of his body. Uh, but then also, it's, it's through the sacraments like of reconciliation, where we can constantly come to Jesus and truly have our sins now forgiven. But ultimately, uh, the Eucharist is the sacrament of Salvation, it's where Jesus here on earth truly acts his name, Jesus becoming Jesus, because it's in the Eucharist that we fully participate in the one sacrifice that he offers. Mm. We're sort of taken into the temple that he is and share in that one ever-living, everlasting sacrifice. And because we participate in that one living sacrifice by which we uh, have salvation— he gives us himself in the Eucharist, his real presence in the Eucharist, so that he truly abides in us and we abide in him. We receive the risen humanity, the risen body and blood of Jesus, the risen Jesus himself, the risen humanity of the very Son of God. And so here on earth, we're all, you know, we're already taken up into the, the heavenly temple, the heavenly Jerusalem, and we're, also, we're already participating in a sense mm -hmm. in the eschaton yes. here on earth because we, we're, we're uh, uh, united, we're taken into the heavenly liturgy that's already being enacted in, in heaven. It's, it's a marvelous thing, really. It is. And so we're, you know, uh, Jesus is constantly enacting his name in the Eucharist fully, because it's in the Eucharist that we most fully share in the salvation and new life of the Holy Spirit that he gives us. And that was from a conversation I had with Father Thomas Wynandy uh, regarding his book, Jesus Becoming Jesus, a Theological Interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels. Salvation is a very rich uh, concept in Scripture. Uh, it had, comes under a variety of phrases. So salvation consists in the forgiveness of sins. It also consists of being freed from bondage to sin. It consists of receiving eternal life. Salvation has to do with dying and rising with Christ. It is to be raised with Christ in heavenly places, as Father uh, Wynandy was pointing out. And this is especially clear in St. Paul's use of the phrase, in Christ. 
I mean, by virtue of our baptism, we are placed in Christ, and he also dwells in us. Now, it's always three different ways that we can talk about being united or in union with God. Uh, It's always surprised me, by the way, that the Reformed Christian tradition, uh, the Calvinist tradition, has a high view of union with Christ, and yet they don't have a high view of the Eucharist as the means by which we retain or develop our union with Christ. I mean, um, the Lutheran tradition has a better grasp than the Reformed tradition. I mean, the Lutheran theologian John Mueller, for instance, talks about Holy Scripture teaching a sacramental union by which the true body and blood of Christ are really and substantially present in the Lord's Supper and are distributed and received in, with, and under the bread and wine. So that's that's a lot closer to the Catholic position. It stops short of transubstantiation, but Lutheran tradition uses a phrase consubstantiation. We don't have time to go into the distinctions. But look, in a society, <laughs> modern American society, where the sacraments are regarded as little more than pious symbols, this position is much closer to the Catholic teaching than what secular philosophies offer. But let me go, there are three, at least three forms of union we can talk about. The first is the creaturely union we have by virtue of the fact that God has created us, and he's at all times essentially inactively present uh, in all creatures. So Jeremiah um, has God saying, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, uh, you are with us now. You are not a God far away. Uh, St. Paul talks about it too in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, talks about he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And of course, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, we have this famous phrase, for in him we live, move, and have our being. Now that's, he's talking to the Athenian philosophers there, St. Paul is, and he's saying by virtue of our creation, we live, move, and have our being in him. There's a different understanding, uh, not just the creaturely union we have, kind of, kind of a general union, but there's a special union we have by virtue of what Christ has accomplished by his incarnation, his passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. This is the union that we have by which the communion of saints is brought together into a living spiritual temple. So Jesus can say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So all these things, we have the creaturely union, uh, we have the, uh, I'd say, the special union, uh, which was accomplished through baptism, by which we are placed in Christ. And in the third place, we have the sacramental union. And this is where uh, we are, uh, our union with Christ is deepened as we feed upon his body and blood. So this is, this is, uh, Catholics really do stress, uh, Jesus says, the man who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So this is critical to maintaining our union with Christ. There's a union by virtue of creation, but, of course, the fall messes that up. 
there's a, re- a union by virtue of recreation by which we are born again uh, through faith and baptism, and we are in Christ, and then that union is deepened and sustained by the Eucharist by which we feed on Christ himself. 